This is the Women Emerging Expedition Podcast, so you can follow the ups and downs and the roundabouts of the expedition and play your part in them. 24 women started on the 28th of May 2022 on this virtual expedition that will take nine months. We are women from across the world determined to find an approach to leadership that resonates with women. We'll be successful so that women the world over will be able to say, if that's leadership, I'm in. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is episode 16. 16! I find it almost impossible to believe. My name is Julie Middleton and I am the expedition leader. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all your messages since the call out for them on, at episode 15. I do sit in bed in the morning listening to them. To all of you who've sent sweet messages saying I hope I get better, the truth is I'm sitting in bed because I'm lazy, not because I'm ill. I sit in bed listening to your messages, reading your papers, reading your ideas, taking them all in and using it as an excuse to be lazy and not to get out of bed. They are incredibly helpful reads and a great start to the day. I've chosen this particular one to read to you because I thought it was irresistible. It's from Anna Robb. Many jobs are not defined as leadership positions or acknowledged in the public realm as leadership should be. One of my aunties is responsible for every single organ donor transfer in the state of Victoria in Australia. She has to be present in every organ donor transfer to ensure ethical practice is adhered to when a body part moves from one person to another. Another one of my aunties, I have many, is pushing Aboriginal curriculum into all tertiary education institutions in Australia to ensure the preservation of Indigenous culture in my own home country. One of my female cousins uses her musical talent to teach children musical therapy, children with special needs. No one's going to write a book about any of these women or how they made their first million because they didn't and they won't. But for me, they are my heroes and my inspiration. Leadership is not only about the people at the top of the totem pole. We need to turn a spotlight on what leadership is in its quiet form. The quiet leadership. Women are doing it everywhere and every day. Yes, thank you, Anna. Thank you also, Anna, for carrying on and volunteering to be a guide. As you'll remember, guides are people, women all over the world, who volunteer to take the calls of the members of the expedition and and share their insights, share their knowledge, share their stories, share everything to help the members of the expedition develop their thinking. As Anna said, Julia, you mentioned in the last podcast that someone wanted to speak to a woman who's brought people together across cultures. I navigate cross-cultural groups daily. On one show, we brought a cast and crew from 36 countries together to create a $250 million aquatic show in Macau, a complete melting pot and sometimes a meltdown. I would be happy to talk about this. Thank you, Anna. I'm going to put you in touch with Fatima, who I know is very, very eager to talk to you as a member of the the expedition who is fascinated by this issue. Please, please, please carry on sending the messages. You know, we all create 
our own bubbles and the expedition can turn into its own bubble as well as anybody else. And there's a real danger that it does. The noises around the world need to be to be listened to by the members of the expedition. We can't disappear. It's, it's a great word, isn't it? That word zeitgeist. I love that word zeitgeist. I love saying it. Um, I looked it up on Google. It says the equivalent of it's the spirit of the age. That doesn't sound as good as zeitgeist. Zeitgeist apparently is an invisible agent or force dominating the characteristics of a given epoch in world history. I'll say that again. An invisible agent or force dominating the characteristics of a given epoch in history. I think we need to just think about what is the zeitgeist, what is the context in which the women are setting off on the expedition. And so there'll be four episodes on this. No attempt to to be comprehensive, just to pick up some interesting things. The, The titles of the four will be, firstly, illiberal liberalism. The second one will be the lost rule of law. The third is called the Hunger Games. And the fourth is called I Am Angry. This first episode, Illiberal Liberalism, has two very remarkable women who have agreed to talk to each other about illiberal liberalism. They've known each other for years and years and years, one in Singapore, the other in Silicon Valley. Sue Ann, whose background is in defence and now works in a think tank, and Nicole, who is a foresight specialist. Not an expression I've heard before, but Having interviewed her, I now want to meet as many foresight specialists as I possibly can. They're going to talk about illiberal liberalism. They're going to talk about the theory of elites and how it has to change. They're going to talk about chicken rice and dinners in Singapore. They're going to talk about a famous photograph in Indonesia that can always be relied upon to fan anti-Western thinking in Indonesia. They're going to talk about local versus global and the need to have a more healthy balance between the two. And they're going to talk about AI and deep fake and many other things, I have no doubt. This was not an easy interview to do. It goes on quite a long time. They are fascinating, but it's it's hard going because they're two, certainly women, infinitely brighter than I am, who touch on so many subjects and my head hurt listening to them. But the truth is that in the days after I'd listened to them, what they said kept on coming back into my mind and framing it slightly different. So definitely zeitgeist here. Have a listen. Nicole and Soanne, this is fantastic. This is the first in our series about the sort of zeitgeist, the context, the, the winds in the air uh, around the world as we start on this expedition. You used a beautiful expression to me, which was about you could hear rumblings, rumblings that sort of were in the air and were a precursor, no doubt, to thunder. You you didn't reckon we got to thunder yet, but you could definitely hear rumblings. And and the expression you, you used, Sue Ann, was illiberal liberalism. Help us understand. Yeah, so I really do think we're living in urgent and very strange and pivotal times. And I'm feeling a lot of distress and unease. And it has to do with the sense that the liberal order that we've been living in, the one that we've benefited from and prospered from, has both broken down 
and has become increasingly oppressive, tyrannical, and intolerant. And, and if people like me, who have been the beneficiaries of the current system, are feeling this way, it must mean that actually the rumblings are getting louder and louder, and, and it's becoming much more palpable, even amongst the elites, is, is what I'm saying. And, and if I were to ask myself, well, what has made me feel this way? I think it has to do with the experience we've had with COVID, the uh, cancel culture that we're, we're starting to see take root in a lot of Western liberal countries, and even the, the current war in Ukraine. And all of this, we're seeing the breakdown of international cooperation, multilateral order in very stark terms. So we see supply chain disruptions, we see that when the when the pandemic broke out, there was vaccine nationalism with uh, with now the rising food prices and inflation. We're seeing food nationalism. So Singapore had our supply of live chickens cut from Malaysia because they had shortages. And so for a while there, people in Singapore were wondering, what are we going to do about our chicken rice? You know, and and it was a real sort of issue there. But Malaysia said, well, we are short of chickens ourselves, so it'll take us some time to sort out that. But in, in the meantime, we're, we're stopping the export of chickens to you. We're also seeing the coercive powers of countries and international organization in a way that we never thought we would. So, you know, during COVID, we saw lockdowns, we saw vaccine mandates, vaccine passports. And so for, for those of us who, who've never really felt like our liberties were in, you know, in any way crimped and who've generally felt free, We've suddenly now witnessed the awesome power of surveillance technology and really just what the governments can do if they, they really want to take away your liberties. And, and so I think it, it's, it's really a very strange time that we, you know, it's a time that I certainly have been saying to myself, I never thought I would live to see these days. So, so Anne, we, we actually met with the beginning of, of this unraveling. We didn't know it then. Um, you know, in the late 90s, you know, in Southeast Asia, the Asia financial crisis hit. And I, I do think those were some rumblings, some hints that this liberal order was was not going to play out like we thought it would, right? You know, we were yeah. maybe young and naive and, and benefiting from being part of this cosmopolitan, globalizing world. What have we taken for granted about the liberal order? I orders? think what we then didn't see, and, and which is now becoming palpably clear, is that this idea that everyone would benefit from globalization is actually false. It's a lie. The trickle-down economics did not happen, and actually only the elites benefited and got really rich and wealthy from the globalized system, and actually huge swaths of people were left behind. They felt stagnant. They didn't really feel like they were moving ahead, and things just got more and more expensive. I think COVID is making those fractures more more visible now, right? I and, think so, right? right? So, I mean, if you just wanted to put it very crudely, we were the elites in our bubbles. We're, yes. we're, we're the same people who did not see why Trump would have been elected. Exactly. And why the, the rise of the extreme right would have uh, taken root in Europe, right? And we would we would look at that and go crazy people what's what's wrong with them right and we were in our bubbles 
we and we didn't want to see the unintended consequences of what we were doing because we were benefiting, you know, from, from these things, right? You're not just seeing the collapse of liberalism. You're saying you can see the rise of illiberal liberalism. What does that mean? So I think the reason why, so there's an aspect of illiberal liberalism that has become, the, the reason why it can be illiberal is because it has become all pervasive at some level, right? I mean, globalization, really just the global economic order just spread its tentacles and its rules globally. And so there is that sense that if you wanted to move ahead in the world, you had to conform to certain global rules and and norms, right? And so actually, people in Indonesia felt this most palpably in 1998 already. And the picture that Indonesians really took issue with was the time when the rupiah plunged in the financial crisis and Indonesia had to suffer the the indignity of you know signing on to IMF's uh, programs and there was this picture of the former Suharto uh, president Suharto sort of signing something with the uh, president of the IMF standing over him with his arms folded and that was a, a picture that resonated very deeply with Indonesians and, you know, triggered, you know, till today, you, you, you could probably trigger a lot of anti-West nationalistic sentiments by, by just re-invoking that picture, right? So, but then I'm saying that, you know, the reason why it's become illiberal now is that because those rules have become far more pervasive and it's, and it's not just in the economic realm. I think it has also come up to four, even in the cultural sphere, right? You know, this extreme progressive, the the extreme left that we're sort of seeing in the US now, and the cancel culture that comes when uh, people feel that, you know, the moment you've offended me, you know, you know, the political correctness that is now in actually liberal universities, like in Harvard, the level of political correctness is quite scary. People are censoring themselves to avoid offending somebody. So, you know, to the extent that it's become all pervasive and and the values have just turned on its head to become intolerant of people who don't share certain sets of progressive values, I think that's, that's why it's become illiberal. Well, liberalism was never an ideology per se. It was a framework. It was a framework that allowed lots of diverse people with different cultures, different value systems to work together, right? Um, And it worked for a while. It worked for a while really well, right? Now, now it it did kind of graft off of imperialism and and, and, and there were beneficiaries and people who who were losers of that order for sure. And the losers now are starting to come up and say, no, you know, we want our our worldview too. It's it's the tribalism. So I, I do think it was able to keep a cap on some of these deeper human natures, right? The the darker yeah. side, you know, our, our lesser angels. Yeah. And those lesser angels are now growing their heads. You're in Silicon Valley, Nicole. It's a very yes. small place. Why is it so important? Well, it's been the birth of 
some of the most important forces we've ever seen. The computer, social media, Facebook, Google's here. They were like states enter themselves. In many ways, they're more powerful than governments, right? And they've shaped how we think. They've shaped the modes of communication. And, and they're also contributors to this illiberalism. There's been unintended consequences. Like we, we've created these little Frankensteins. Not only can you do surveillance capitalism very well, you know, naively, the, the Western elites thought, oh, China is inevitably going to become like us because technology is going to just, you know, um, take down these hierarchies. They never thought in a million years that, that they would reinforce hierarchies, right? And that they would just make it easier to quell dissent. Nicole, you once used an expression to me of we need a new theory of elites. What did that mean? It means a lot of things. So, so you know, Sue Ann alluded it to earlier that a lot of what has happened is is in to use a wonky political science term, elite capture. You know, elites had uh, have been benefiting and making gotten very rich out of our system, and they continue to do. Elites around the world, they actually those people have a lot more in common. Whereas before, elites used to have some kind of moral code. So in the United States, the, the corporate elite fractured right when globalization was starting to take off because then they had no they had no local feedback loops anymore. They had no moral accountability, right? And they still did very immoral things back then, but there was some consensus then and some aware self-awareness of their responsibility. What is so interesting right now is the people who have awareness of some self-responsibility feel quite powerless and the one and the elites that are not aware that they are elites are and are very powerful or not even aware <laughs> are not even aware that they're elite. So here in, in Silicon Valley, where we have this myth of meritocracy, which has been, it's become very toxic. A lot of them don't even realize that, th that this is the responsibility that they have. Like they don't even see themselves as elites, right? And, and of course, elites don't like to be talked about because as soon as you make them visible, they get very uncomfortable, right? Um, and so there's some really uncomfortable conversations actually that have to happen. And maybe they're happening in places like Davos, sort of the elite a forum that it happens in Davos, Switzerland every year. Like that was supposed to be a place where these elites would have these conversations. But this year, a lot of people are just like, they've lost all moral authority. They've lost, they, they've actually failed. You know, there's these conversations of like, well, why are we meeting anymore? Like, look what we've done. Like things are falling apart. And, and it's become, it's a place where you go and want to rebrand your identity and it's a place for PR firms, right? It, it's lost its, it's lost its purpose and people are looking around and going, where are those new meeting places? Where are the new conversations happening? This is the interesting question mm -hmm. to ask. And they, they are happening. There is the, as a foresight specialist, I think it looks, the time looks very bleak and, and uncertain. And underneath all of this, there's a lot of political innovation that is going to come out of this because what all these forces have, have shown us is just how fragile democracy is, how fragile um, practical problem solving in a democratic way is like, like what that requires is hard work. We were very complacent. I think we're in the, we were in the age of complacency and that age has now just blown up. Right. Um, and now we have to get, we have to roll up our sleeves. And I think the youngers are showing us and are energizing us in that direction. There's going to yeah. be, I think a multi-generational mm -hmm. collaborative push that we will see once we recover from this moment and I, yeah. and I do think we will maybe yeah. we might recreate liberal liberalism in a new way for our yeah. time. 
Yes. Um, I think we have to. So I I actually know, you know, good friends who are on this journey. And it seems like part of the solution really goes back to community building, just at the grassroots level. Because what is necessary in in this age of alienation is really just authentic connections again. And actually and caring. Connections yeah. and caring. If, if the pandemic showed us anything, it's that we yeah. need a caring economy. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, the other thing that sort of like troubles me from a from a tech perspective, and I this is also the issues that I've been looking at in, in the think tank that I'm working with, uh, because I look at media tech and society, is really this whole issue of the pervasiveness of amplified messages that are fake, right? So, you know, whether it's disinformation, misinformation, the role of social media, but the crux of it is that people are really now confused about what is true and what is false. And it's only going to get worse as you read about the trajectory that AI is going to take. We think that we've got a problem now with trying to figure out what is true and what is false just from the social media news feeds that we're reading. We're soon going to have a have trouble figuring out whether it's really me right now talking to you or if it's just some um, animation that's somehow managed to capture my voice and my my gestures and pretend like I'm speaking to you. And so my answer to all of this is that you're going to have to just build your networks at a local level, build community, you know, in, in flesh and blood. <laughs> And almost go hyper local again. And I, but I don't think I don't think localism is going to work either. I do believe we have to re- rebuild our community and and think better. How do we be better groups instead of individuals, right? Um, mm-hmm. But but we're not going to navigate all of the challenges around climate change and some of the the thing the bigger things if we just stay local. So I think it's a better balance between top down and bottom up. Perhaps I am a classical liberal, meaning that the liberalism that I want to see restored is a liberalism where there are just common rules of the road where people with diverse beliefs, convictions, cultural backgrounds, uh, and very fundamentally different views are able to come around and sit at the table or at the public and to give a cogent argument as to why they view things the way they do and and respectfully listen to someone who has a very different set of convictions and beliefs and somehow are able to facilitate some sort of negotiation and agree um, in a very civilized manner, right? So, I mean, that was essentially the essence of classic liberalism. It was a way to facilitate and bring about uh, plural societies that could keep the peace. And this was actually the fundamental uh, value of our international global system, right? Or of any creative culture, Silicon Valley would not have been possible without those values. You know, there's a direct line from the hippies to the computer. There are without... no hippies left on in Silicon Valley. Right? No, they've all been pushed out. And so there's a there's a big existential crisis here about the very creative, you know, diverse, pluralistic view where we had amazing 
amazing artists and musicians and alternative ways of living and being. All of that was the rich environment, creative environment that allowed computers to be invented in the first place, right? And, 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 and the computers were not just invented by that. There was a whole defense culture here, a lot of military funding of the, the semiconductor industry and stuff. But all those places were allowed to swim and be together and intermix. And, and even now, things there's a really big worry that that, that culture is dead because before... Will there be more women in this new theory of elites? There has to be. But unfortunately, in the short term, no. We're seeing a record drop off of people, um, of women in all leadership capabilities. Um, and, and it happened was happening before COVID. Women were like, we're giving these impossible choices between working these really, really intense jobs and being mothers, right? And forcing us to like find work-life balance. Like whoever invented that idea, that was ridiculous. There's, there's never, never balance. It's, it should be a system. It should be an integrated system that allows us to do both. But I do think on the grassroots level, as it always has been, as women will come back and this time, I hope we renegotiate the rules of the game. Yeah. And I do think the crises that are con- continuing to hit us and will hit us will force that. I think I think there's going to be a forcing function that we are interdependent, that we are dependent on each other, that we need each other, that we need to care about each other um, in new ways. Um, and I do think that at the root cause that will help fight the illiberalism that we're seeing. This reconnection to caring will, I think, help us and curiosity. Yeah. Uh, Caring yeah. and curiosity. I, I think what, what has contributed to the intolerance and illiberalism is, is the artificialness of the polarization that you see on social media, right? And then it just gets people angry because you think that that thing is real. I do think, you know, around the innovation aspect, um, there's no better future until we figure out what are the new rules of the game for social media? How do we put in some rules of accountability? There's, there's an immaturity here. This is still a very young place. These are new technologies. And part of that immaturity is a lack of self-awareness, I think. In many ways, they don't want to be self-aware because then if they are aware, they have to be admit some sort of responsibility. Um, And and I do think we need we need like that good big sister energy back. It's like, come on, guys, let's let's all let's all sit at the dinner today to table now. You know, let's 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 get back to the dinner table. We're missing that big sister energy. I am thinking about how the world is essentially grappling and coming to terms with the state that the United States is in right now. Um, because it is it is a superpower, not just from an economic military point of view, but as Nicole has been talking, I mean, it has been the home of a lot of the tech that rules the world. And so actually what happens within the US, the political debates and polarization uh, happening in the US, even the culture wars that are happening in the US now they have a global influence because and these conversations when you have different parts of the world having this conversation usually have the word hypocrisy in them quite quickly explain that well because if you just move away from the ideals of liberal democracy as as a political ideology and ideal and if you just look at real politics and you take a realist view of what has really happened in the world and in international affairs and world affairs 
you will see that it is often just the naked pursuit of national interest that drives the actions and calculations of powerful countries. And so in Asia and in former colonies, they understand this very well because to the extent that they have been colonized by the West, they have seen and experienced the realities of what that inequality, structural inequality of power actually looks like. And so for all of the talk about human rights and all of that, the actions uh, don't fit the words. And, you know, so I, I think hypocrisy, double standards has been something that resonated very strongly when we when you look at actually with puzzlement, a lot of the Southeast Asian countries reaction to the war in Ukraine. And we were really surprised, you know, why is it that there's so much like pro Russia, pro Putin narratives resonating genuinely in Southeast Asia? And to, to a certain extent, yes, I mean, we we've seen that, you know, the Russian trolls and bots and info ops, you know, suddenly had a field day amplifying uh, some of these sentiments. But the, the fact that they resonated was because people really cheered on Putin and Xi Jinping for that matter when they took on the West and when they called out the West for hypocrisy and double standards. So it, it, it's a very real and significant theme out here in Asia. It's a really interesting time because, again, looking at how, look at the state of the world right now, how fragile our ecological places are. So on the one hand, the United States might be accelerating its decline and fragmenting, and it might be fragmenting within a decade. Like if Roe path, if Roe gets, if these fundamental human rights get dismantled in the in this country then we're just going to be not so united states where california is going to become more california and and so forth right is that going to benefit the world because the united states was co-leaders in creating this order in the first place after world war ii it was in their interest it was in their self-interest to do this but it was it was such a revolutionary idea at the time the marshall plan all of these ideas to, that we have to invest in each other's futures because we are an independent world was like it was a big deal and 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 we we need that actually that understanding of our independence more than ever now and so if the united states does fail however hypocritical um they may be or and or maybe this is a time to reset you know and and a lot of women are looking around and we're just exhausted on, on the one hand from what, the moment where we're, we've been in but I do think, you know, the youngers are moving up and, and I, I know that's my job now is mm. to enable the right constellation of younger leaders to take the mantle and we have to do it together. So I think the mm. other mindset shift is this multi-generational collaboration model. And I think as, as women, we get it. It's in our, it's in our, how we grew up in our families. Right. And so we don't have to learn that. I see a lot of my male colleagues having to learn that and learn that very bad or very painfully, right? Um, and so, so it's a moment of multi-generational collaboration, of uh, vision, but but women are, are good at managing uncertainty because we've, for our entire lives and for many, many generations, we've not, no, we've not, we've been in many situations where we've not known what to do, right? So we've had to improvise, we've had to bootstrap. What uh, you said about like intergenerational leadership um, resonates with me. And 
And insofar as women, I guess are a little, I, I hate to overgeneralize, right? Because I, you know, women are also very ego-driven, but insofar as women have the ability to synthesize and see things more holistically or have the ability to empathize a little bit more, then maybe then I would sort of see say that that's, that's kind of like what women can bring to the table, right? The ability to sort of like hold things in tension and deal with complexity and multitask. Thank you, Suan. Thank you, Nicole. Your friendship is lovely to listen to. You feel no need to agree with each other, merely to take each other's ideas forward. It's a it's a joy to listen to. The leadership lessons out of out of I've, my head has been full of it. The the obvious one, the beware of the photograph opportunities. That idiotic man who stood with his arms crossed behind the signature, a photograph that no one will forget. I think the concept of a fact no longer being clear whether it's true or false is tricky. But of course, the thought that you don't know if it's true or false, that you're actually talking to another human being is going to be pretty tricky. And and it's a thought for those of us who've come out of COVID thinking we're going to do much less travelling and we don't actually need to meet face to face. Maybe, maybe not. The theory of elites is very interesting. I hope there are going to be a lot of women in the theory of elites. Where will we come together? Interesting again, where will people come together for new ideas? And will there be enough women around the table? And then I haven't got my head around really what Sue Ann's saying about cancel culture, but certainly thinking through the impact of cancel culture, not just on the people in the middle of it, but the people observing it. I think that's worth thinking about. So that's the first of the zeitgeist. Enjoy. Next week, I think I'm going to change the order. I think we're going to have Hunger Games first. I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We would love you to follow the expedition and provide your own stories and perspectives. You can do this by subscribing to this podcast and joining the Women Emerging Group on LinkedIn, where you can have your say.